on this week's Inside Marketing, we'll kick the year off with our first episode by taking a look at some of the global big trends that are coming down the track. I will be joined by Dan Callagine, who is Head of Media Futures Global at Dentsu. We're going to talk about some of the big trends. Dan is a regular contributor to the show. And he publishes an annual trends report, which is fantastic reading so we unpack some of that we'll chat about some of the big trends that are happening and so you can stay up to speed with everything you need to know for the year ahead so that's global trends a look ahead to 2024 only on this week's inside marketing the inside marketing podcast brought to you by dentsu and irish times media solutions Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, I'm delighted to be joined by what is an annual event. It's the return of Dan Caladine, who's head of Media Futures at Dentsu, the global head of Media Futures at Dentsu, if you will. So good morning, Dan. How are you doing? How's life? Hi, Dave. Yeah, very well. Life's life's going well at the moment. It's it's a it's a it's at least it's not raining at the moment in London, mm. which is a bit of a change from the last few weeks. Same here, same here. There's no rain left, as I always say in Ireland. We've used it all for the year. Um, so yeah, you're you're back again, and it's one I always look forward to because it's kind of cheating. It's doing the podcast, but then it's kind of good learning for me. So I've read. Is, is it getting longer every year, or maybe it's just designed better and there's more imagery in it? But um, it's it it's good. It's, it, there's a lot in it. It's quite meaty. There's a lot of substance in it, and it's always a great read. And I always look forward to it. I got a pre-read of it before it came out, um, and it was great. So. Uh, so firstly, uh, you're doing it a long time, but thank you for taking the time to join me. I imagine you're busy on the circuit, as you will. It's like a book a book launch. You're doing the circuit and, and presenting this everywhere to everyone. Is that right? Yeah, we've, we've been speaking to a lot of clients about it. I'm getting, uh, I'm getting a lot of invites to go and speak to people's clients. But then also what we've done this year is we've um, tried to enable more people around the network to go and present it to their clients and things like that. So, so less onus on me, but yes, it's keeping me busy. Certainly. Right. Very good. Very good. Right. Well, I know you're a busy man, so I won't keep you too much longer. So we go to, as I say, there's lots in it, not going to get, get through everything in it. Um, but we'll make it available for people. Um, but there is a lot in it, but we'll pick out some of the, some of the kind of the, the, the bigger or the meaty topics on it. And we'll, we'll kind of cover what we can. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to kick off. So, We'll start with AI, which affects everything, um, and you know, wouldn't be it wouldn't be a trends presentation if we didn't talk about AI. But um, the rise of generative search. So, how does AI change how we search for things at the moment? And do you think that, like, we're all quite used to, like Google, it's for for all its the accusations against it, it has done an incredibly good job of making itself so sticky. So, it's it's the only gig in town in terms of search more or less it has been the way we use search um you know tapping things into a keyboard is is a is a fundamental behavior that that is ingrained in us but does does the does ai powered search change that and change how we might interface search and how we search for things and how we are delivered information so how does it change and then does that offer anybody is it kind of a reset maybe does it offer anybody else a chance to break google's monopoly or do you think they'll just probably continue to dominate in the same way they did in this slightly new world so i think the simple answer to that is we don't know yet but i think things will definitely change so the thing about ai research is that i think for many of us when we first started using chat gpt it almost felt a bit like a search engine because you're typing something into a box and you're getting something out but instead of instead of getting you know a set of links uh, you got a single answer so one example is if you go to google or to bing or another search engine and say 
I'd like a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. It will give you a load of homework. You'll you'll see a lot of links. You'll have to then assess the different links, decide which one, you know, which particular which particular publisher or mm. content source or chef or whatever you want to go with. If you do that within something like ChatGPT or with Google's Bard, it will give you a single answer. So that's kind of that's kind of the the potential promise that's kind of the dream with ai powered search in that it will it will look at your question and rather than effectively giving you homework and saying here are some things that it might be that we think it probably is it will say this is the definitive answer almost like with alexa or something where it just gives you i mean alexa clearly it would be super annoying if alexa gave you here are 10 things that might be interesting to you in response to your question. So it's almost like uh, like a sort of an on-screen version of something which just gives you a single answer. At least that's the promise of it. But the problem is that, you know, potentially, uh, potentially like some people we might know in our own lives or things like that, if it doesn't know the answer, it has a tendency at the moment to just make things up and things that sort of sound quite convincing. So this is... So this is the problem, and this is the thing we really don't know. So what's happening at the moment is that both Bing and Google and also others, other, other, search, other search providers and other markets are basically experimenting with it and integrating it in a sort of test zone. And what we're hearing is that, I mean, I've been using the Bing one a little bit. Uh, the Google one isn't yet available. I think I don't think outside of the States. But we're hearing that, you know, it's getting quite good feedback, quite good reviews over there. But what we're expecting is for these things to become, you know, sort of gradually integrated into the main place where you do your search. So the Google homepage, the Bing homepage and things like that, potentially for specific topics. Um, so I think, I think, for example, for things like medical advice, I think it's quite unlikely that we'll see, um, you know, we'll get these single answers, these single definitive answers with that because it would just be too dangerous. And I think um, mm. Google particularly has been quite cautious in introducing it because it's built up this, you know, this solid reputation for being very reliable and things like that. And if suddenly Google search is making stuff up around things that actually matter, like medical advice and things like that, then then obviously that could you know, that could destroy an awful lot of the brand heritage that Google's mm. spent so long time. So so the simple answer, going back to it, is we simply don't know, but it could be quite revolutionary at some point in the future. And there is potential for, you know, potentially new companies to come in. I think it's pretty unlikely. I think, I think in early January, Google's share price took a bit of a hit because I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, this could, mm. you know, Google make a huge amount of their revenue from search search advertising. I don't think that's likely to happen or it doesn't seem as likely as people thought it was towards the start of this year. But I do think that there is potentially scope for, you know, new new companies. I mean, you know, OpenAI, OpenAI itself, it's got um, a chat GPT app where you can ask it questions and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be really interesting in the mm. years going forward. But as I say, you know, at the moment we simply don't know. But it just seems very likely that some things are going to change. Right. But but as you say, if it's if it's slowly integrated into your current interface, then 
it probably won't change everything that much because people who use Google will probably um, just see use the new and improved Google. Um, there are some problems with that, as you say. So, um, like, you don't know where the information is coming from. You don't know the source of it, right? So um, that's that's not great because I, I know, like, even simple things, like even for recipes, which you mentioned, like. I can scan down. I've I've recipes or providers that I that I trust, like BBC Food, right, or or whatever. Jamie Oliver might be another one that I'd say. And I scan quickly down. Don't know that. Don't know that. Oh, Jamie Oliver, that's always good. It's always pretty easy ingredients. Um, whereas I I don't know. You don't know where stuff is coming from with with AI powered search. So that's as you point out, is going to be a problem. Um, but a, a big impact it is going to have also is on creative, but. And the speed at which, and I'm sure you've used them, um, Mid Journey and and things. The, the speed at which it spits out images and the likeness to celebrity or whoever you want to type in, did Elon Musk or something like that? And it goes out. What what's the what's the IP area around this? So if you're if you're if you're using an image that kind of looks like somebody, but it's actually not them because it's just computer generated. Where does the IP for creative imagery sit? Or like because it can generate anything that looks like anything. Is that a whole grey area or is that one that's going to be worked on and, and, and usage of images and that kind of thing? So so it is a massive grey area and I should obviously um, start my answer by saying I'm categorically not a legal expert on these sorts of things. But the way things seem to be going is that the, um, is that the AI companies seem to be wanting to, to put guardrails in place where it's harder for people to create pictures of known celebrities. So there's obviously, you know, there have been a few famous examples. There were, there were examples of pictures of um, of the Pope. There were examples of pictures of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, Tom Hanks did the, that teeth the, whitening ad. Remember that one, the fake. Oh one? well, there's yeah. So there's there's a couple of examples where essentially companies have used the likeness of celebrities. There's one that Tom Hanks raised that, that he said, this was not me. I yeah. was not involved with this campaign. I don't endorse this product. There's also a Scarlett Johansson one as well. Um, so I think the the legal thing, I mean, there is a massive gray area. Like I say, the companies are basically trying to put guardrails in place to stop people creating, creating pictures of known celebrities and stuff like that, because that potentially creates problems. Um, and in fact, there's a, I read about this job where basically there are these people who are hired um, by the AI companies to basically go in and try and break the system before it goes live, to try to ask questions in such a way that they can try to persuade it to do things that they're not meant to and stuff like that, which would right. be a fascinating That's job a to have. Great job. That'd be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. So much fun. Um, but so, so I think they're putting guardrails in place. But then also, what you've got is companies like um, like Adobe, companies like Getty, companies like Shutterstock, who've essentially trained their AI models on their own pictures, the pictures they already have IP for. So, if you ask right. that to produce a picture of a of a house or a cat or whatever, it knows what it looks like because it because it's been trained on these pictures where the licenses have been paid, where the, the, the original creators have been properly rewarded and those sorts of things as well. Mm. Whereas with things like, um, with, with some of the, some of the more famous ones, you know, they're, they're just not saying exactly what data, what data they trained them on. Mm. And, and, and it seems pretty clear to me that if you can produce a picture of the Pope, um, or a picture of a picture of, uh, 
a picture that looks a lot like the Pope, then at some point it's been shown an official picture. Yeah. Or at some point it's been shown, you know, something from a news library or something like that. And that's where that's where it becomes pretty problematic. But this is one area where I think um you know, I, I think things are changing quite rapidly because mm. I think uh I think sort of governance within companies and stuff like that, that they're, they're they're saying if you're producing anything which is public facing, then it's got to be completely compliant. Yeah, because it's an interesting area because like um I mean you could go and cast an actress or a model that looks a bit like Scarlett Johansson, as long as she doesn't say she's Scarlett Johansson in your ad, you can do that, right? So a likeness is not is not ownable IP. Somebody could look like you in the real world and there's just there's nothing you can do about that, right? So I guess the same thing if you as long as you don't claim it. But the thing with the Tom Hanks thing that the dental the dental the teeth whitening thing that I thought was great was that it's the classic case of um they got more coverage on the news outlets about yeah. the use of the thing than they did from the original post. So just break break the rules once and you get hundreds of millions worth of free publicity. So that the only reason that campaign came in my radar was because it was all over the news outlets. That's the only reason it was picked up. So it's kind of um you know the the, the sin is is exacerbated when people report on it because it gained a huge amount of traction. So I guess I mean it depends on what the fines are, how how punitive it is for people then it's probably, it's a well-known tactic. I mean, um, a brand of crisps did it here, do some provocative imagery, stick it up on posters. You know it's going to get complaints. It's going to get huge amount of publicity. You're going to have to take them down, but it doesn't matter. Just put up two posters and it generates free publicity. So it's kind of gameable at the moment. Um, but, I, but I think the other thing is it works the first time somebody does it. Yeah. But if somebody does this in a year's time, it, yeah. people, aren't, people aren't going to be talking about it because they did that story last year yeah. when it was Tom Hanks and Scarlett Johansson. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's... But, yeah, so I think I think there will be issues. I mean, there's also obviously issues around around what they call deep fakes, around, mm-hmm. you know, was this actually a leaked, a leaked, leaked footage of a politician saying something, or has it been created and things like that? And so, so I think all this stuff is, yeah. I think, I think twenty twenty four is going to be a difficult year for a lot of yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's a thing, you know, that saying, I can't believe my eyes. It's literally, it's going to become like have greater meaning as we move ahead. Because I've seen some of the videos and it's Morgan Freeman, one, it's just incredible. The likeness is just incredible. And um, we've been using AI for campaign optimization media for some time now, like so. Google Performance Max, um, good and bad, right? If you want to, if you want to, I want, if I play devil's advocate, it's good. If you're a client that says, I don't care how you do it, and I don't care where you show it, and I don't care what you do with it, just get me these results, right? There's some money, there's some assets, get me that result. Um, and if you don't care and you're a small marketer, it's probably a good thing. You give up control, you get no visibility, you're kind of trusting Google to mark their own homework to a degree. Um, so I can see both sides. But giving up control and AI planning is probably a bit of a dangerous territory um, because you don't know where it's going and there's not full control and no visibility and you don't know what's happening to the black box. But what else has happened there? Because Google Performance Max is kind of what, maybe 18 months old or something like that. What else is happening? And is this going to be the way forward, do you think? So I think we're going to see the big platforms increasingly use this because the big platforms have got huge amounts of data. And by and large, the more data you've got to train your system on, then the better the system is going to be. Um, Meta, so Facebook and Instagram, has a has a thing called Advantage Plus, um, which we 
been using quite a lot and it seems to give very good results. Um, you hear about, you know, good stories about increased ROI and those sorts of things. And it's very automated. But what you're doing is you're seeding quite a lot of control. You're giving quite a lot of control up in terms of exactly how your ads look and potentially exactly what sort of audience you're going for and those sorts of things. Because it's almost like the case a few years ago when um if you know when sort of moving on from the chess computers, they tried to train a computer to play Go, which is a much more complex game. Mm. And they basically said, you know, this is the outcome. These are the things you're allowed to do. You go ahead and you try and work out a way to win a match. And in a way, the it's almost like an analogy for how the AI optimization works. In that they're saying, this is what the this is what we we want the outcome to be. Here are the different things you can play with. Uh, go away and try and get us the best possible outcome for this, which is fine if it works. But if it doesn't work, you don't really, you're not really able to forensically look at what went wrong with the campaign, what the learnings are, and, and those sorts of things. So, so yeah, so it's a double-edged sword, really. I mean, I think, um, I think it's one of these things where you should test, you know, obviously test with test budgets, test slowly, and if it is working, then sort of you know, continue to use it, but really be be very careful with it. Because also with these things, you can also imagine, you know, one day it won't work. And what do you do yeah. if you've if you've given over all the power to the machine and it, and it suddenly stops working? Mm. But it's How not great for agencies. It, it wouldn't be a great, I mean, it's not great for a planner in an agency who's doing that where, I mean, I, I know agencies provide many other services, but just there's a whole layer of people involved in campaign optimization and, um, insights and all that and planning so uh, if a if ai does planning and creative and um stitching together what you need and distribution of uh, it's not it, it's kind of um yeah make might make a, a few people redundant in the agency landscape no well this i mean it's important to think this is only one element of the campaign as well so it's only for things like performance campaigns it's only for small elements but then also what you'll get is you'll get Somebody's got to decide whether you use the meta version or the Amazon yeah, version yeah. or the alphabet version or and how much of your budget you put into this thing versus other sorts of yeah, channels like the true. newspaper sites and the you know and the local language sites and things mm. like that. So yeah, so people for uh, I mean, it, so so while while Meta, for example, is talking about it a lot, it's still a comparatively small part of their part of their business as well. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so I'll move on because you've got a few other things to talk about. Um, I'm familiar with what walled gardens are, but can you explain to me what, what walled pipes are? Though I wasn't, that's one I didn't know exactly what that meant. It's in your trends document. So this is one of the trends which sort of moves beyond AI where we're looking at what's happening with the big platforms. So like, you know, the metas and the alphabets, but also the slightly smaller players um, like, you know, Twitter now known as X. We always have to say that. And um and Reddit and people like that as well. And what we've seen is that they're becoming much more protectionist over their data and over their content. And so by, I mean, I think there's been, there's been a phrase in the industry for quite a long time about the pipes, which is effectively the things that connect the different things to each other, the things which sort of move in these, um, you know, you can sort of integrate something in the same way that if you were plumbing your house or something, you would sort of put a pipe from this thing to this thing and, and and stuff like that. So when we talk about the pipes, what we're really talking about is the APIs and the the digital connectors that link different things together. And so traditionally, there's been quite a lot of openness around these things. I remember, we, in fact, with our report 
quite a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago or more now, we were talking about one app integrating content from another because it seemed to be this absolutely brand new thing that you could get uh, an app like Google Maps and you could actually integrate Uber into it so that if you saw where you wanted to go and you saw the different ways, how long it would take you to cycle there, how long it would take you to go on the bus or whatever. And then one of the options would be taxi. And then you could tap on a button and it would take you straight through to the taxi app. And it already knew where you wanted to go and stuff. So the whole idea of integrating API, integrating API, integrating content from one app into another, we've had for about 10 or more years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all been very open. And that's been a whole sort of, you know, almost like the very open web. But what we're starting to see now is a lot of these apps, which had been previously very open with their data, now saying, actually, we don't want you to, we don't want you to be able to play with our content or play with our data or embed our posts onto your site or something like that. And two classic examples of this were X, as I say, formerly known as Twitter, and uh, and Reddit. And really, from the early days of those of those things, one of the ways that they encouraged usage was that they allowed people to take their APIs, so to take all of their content, but effectively put a new wrapper around it. So nice. you had things like Tweet TweetDeck, which was another way of um, using Twitter, where you could you could pretty much define what the experience looked like in terms of what columns you had on your, you know, when you when you looked at it on your laptop or your tablet or something. And then also um, with Reddit, there were also apps that emerged where people could basically design their own interface for it, and they found it quite a lot easier to use and stuff. So this mm-hmm. was happening quite happily for years and years. But about six months ago, both of these companies just said, okay, we're going to stop this. Or if you want to use our API, if you want to use our content, you're going to have to pay us a lot of money. And there's really three years, three reasons for this. One reason was that um, they could see people building building businesses off this. Mm. Um, and these people were effectively getting the content free. And they just sort of thought, well, you know, in both those cases, the companies aren't profitable. And they thought, you know, we need to get revenue from these guys, the, the these guys who've basically taken our content. Um, the second thing is, if I'm using X, which I do quite a lot, they want me to be on their own website or on their own app so that mm. they can serve me adverts and they can monetize me, but also they can give me a first-party cookie so that they can actually um, work out how to tar- target the right sort of advertising to me. And that's obviously very valuable to me. But then the other thing, the final thing about it was, and this takes us back to the AI space, there is a strong suspicion that people like OpenAI, in the same way that they haven't really said what photo sources they've they've trained their systems on, um, they also haven't been entirely open or, or all that open about what what sort of written content they've trained right. the system on. And if you're creating a if you're creating a chatbot and you're basically saying um, we want the chatbot to sound like a human, we want it to have a certain tone of voice or something, getting a whole load of data from some something like Twitter or something like. Um, like Reddit is actually really useful, yeah. And you can almost think you can almost think about Elon Musk buying Twitter in retrospect and say a lot of people didn't really see that there was a great deal of value in 15 years worth of old tweets. Yeah. But actually, as soon as you bring in training AI systems, there's actually you know potentially a huge amount of value because it just gives you so many examples of how people speak. Yeah, and you know it's it's yeah it's potentially really valuable. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I I agree on all the um on tweet tech and all. It'd be effectively like me setting up a, a, a platform and taking Irish Times 
sport content and just repackaging it and making more money than the Irish Times off it, um, which is kind of, yeah, which is a bit mad. Um, in the, the trend segment in this section as well, you talk about the, a, an identity refocus. So can you expand on that for me and let me talk a little bit about what that means and what, what you see happening in that space? So again, it's it's really all about the platforms trying to take back more control over um, over their relationship with the users and also sort of trying to monetize the users in other sorts of ways. So classic example of this is Netflix. So again, you know, it's quite similar to, to Reddit and Twitter. Um, Netflix used to be pretty free and easy about people sharing their password details and things like that because it was a good way of you know, you might mention a show to your friends and they say, oh, we haven't got Netflix. And you say, oh, you know, mm-hmm. here's my here's my login. Knock yourself out, basically. And um, But earlier this year, they, they stopped doing that. I mean, there have been all sorts of estimates flying around about how much extra money they could make if everybody who watched it was actually a subscriber. Yeah. And so earlier this year, they started using things like tracking people's IP addresses so that they could see you know, this particular person is is watching, but they're not in the household that we normally associate with this account. Therefore, and I'm sure lots of us have shared our, shared our details and things like that. But what they're now doing is they're saying, if you want to watch, then you've got to pay for it. So th- this gives them two things, really. Obviously, it gives them extra revenue. And in the last quarter, they picked up something like eight or nine million new subscribers, taking them to, you know, nearly 250 million, which is an extraordinary number. Um, but the other thing is they simply learn more about the people who are actually uh, who are actually watching. So in the old days, it didn't really matter the the audience demographic of people who watched the crown, although I suppose they wanted to know who it was because they wanted to know who to target when they've got a new series of, of it coming out. But these days, now that they're going after um, after the same sort of ad budgets that TV stations are going after, because they've now got, I think they they announced the other week, they've got 15 million um, paid subscribers now. Sorry, 15 million subscribers who also take advertising with the Netflix that they see. Once they're going for once they're going for advertising budgets, they really need to know who the audience is, and and so and so people who were watching occasionally, people in other households uh, who were using their friends' accounts and stuff. If they can get them onto their own accounts, then they've got an email address, they've got a payment card, and they can actually see quite a lot of things about them potentially. And again, that's just really useful data for them. So that's one example of that. But then the other thing is the whole thing of the the verified, the verified user, the premium account and things. And we've seen this. I mean, Twitter's had it for quite a long time, but it was only after Elon Musk took over that they started charging people yeah. for it. Um, Snapchat's been doing it very successfully i think we've got five million people paying something like um four pounds a month i think it might be um meta has also introduced it i think for eight pounds a month i get offered this with my with my facebook and with my instagram accounts and stuff um and effectively you know it's a, it's a way of making extra revenue from their users it's a way of providing services to the super users but also it's a way of finding out more about these people because with my Twitter account, all they know about me is an email address, yeah. and the email address might be might be fake. Um, but if I sign up for premium membership, then they've also got a payment card, so they know that I'm a real person. In yeah. that I've got a, a pay, in, in that I've got uh, you know the ability to get a to get a payment card. But then also potentially they can take that payment card data and again find find out more about me. So it's mm. really just all about 
trying to find ways of monetizing their users, whether it's actually getting them to pay for stuff, but also learning about them more so that in the same way that, you know, Amazon's made, Amazon's made, I think in the last four quarters, over $42 billion in terms of advertising yeah. because they know who their users are. They know where they live. Uh, they know their payment details. They know the sorts of things they buy and stuff like that. If you're somebody like Twitter and you can get that sort of information about your users, or if you're somebody like Instagram and you can get that sort of information about your users, you can monetize them um, yeah. potentially much more effectively. Yeah, and it's um, like I... So it's it's cleaning up their database. I mean, I get it for for um, the artist formerly known as Twitter. I, I mean, if they wanted to remove the the, the fraud, the bots off the system, just charge people one cent uh, or whatever, and that will tidy that. And, up and that's them. and that's what they're and that's what they're experiment, experimenting with at the moment in New Zealand and the Philippines. Yeah, so they're basically charging you a dollar a year. Yeah, but what it means is you need to have a payment card exactly, associated yeah. with it. So if you want if you wanted to still, clean it up, you could exactly. Yeah. Well, I think and I, and I think he. So whenever he sort of says he's going to do a new thing, half the people on Twitter, it seems, or half the people that the algorithm chooses to show me tweets from um, say, oh, we're going to leave and all, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, some people do, but most people don't, basically. Mm. So it's going to be interesting to see if he does if he does introduce this. But also, it's going to be interesting to see what the bots and the spammers and the what you know what ways they've got of getting around it because they seem to have all been able to buy or a lot of them seem to have been able to buy blue ticks anyway so right i don't know that it necessarily um but let's see yeah and so what do you think about like i mean i get it for netflix because that well that model was was always the case so you you always had to pay for it unless or Mm -hmm. sorry somebody had to pay for it if you got a free off your mate or whatever that's different but somebody had to pay for it so you knew the value exchange um do you think you're going to see like um, Meta and and Snapchat and X and things like that. Like, do you think people would pay for that? Because it's pretty hard to get people to pay for stuff that they, up to a certain point, always had for free. Or is it just? Gonna I mean, be some. Well I mean, some people. I mean, some people do. So Snapchat, I think, as I say, has, I think it's five million people paying for the premium thing, and right. what that gives them is access to early features, access to, uh, you know, to be to be get able to get some filters more quickly than others it's a little bit it's also a little bit like if you've ever done linkedin premium it's a little bit like that mm. in you can see who's been looking at your account and stuff okay. i as as i understand it so if you're an 18 year old and you're interested in somebody then you can actually see how many times they're they're going to check your account and what you what you've done and right. stuff like that and that's potentially that's potentially worth um dollars a month oh, or euros yeah. a month or whatever yeah, true. you know you you can you can sort of you can sort of see that so i think and, and and i think with the with the meta one i think they give you access to better customer support so if you've ever had a problem with your instagram account and you've tried to get in touch with somebody to um to unlock it or to tell them that somebody's uh, one of my friends was being impersonated by somebody um oh. And it was an absolute nightmare for her to try and get in touch with official support to say, yeah. this, you know, this account isn't me, but it's messaging my dad and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, so so it gives you, you know, it, it gives you extra features, basically, and it gives you access to better support and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So you can see why people, on the face of it, you would think, 
I definitely wouldn't pay for that. But when when you see you things see like you that, get. you think, well, but also if you were, you know, if you had a few, if you had a few followers and you were trying to be an influencer or something, then it would just be quite useful to have a blue yeah. tick against your name. Absolutely, and so there's yeah. definitely a market, you know, there, there's, there's definitely a market for people to pay for that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, true. And then it's not like the whole thing moves to payments. So people will pay like LinkedIn. People want to use the free stuff, but the added functionality is worth whatever the price elasticity is for, for any individual. They'll make that call. Yeah. Um, and we talked about search and AI. How is search evolving into new platforms like TikTok and Instagram? And and there's a um, a phrase in, in the trends document you said, you know, that companies are trying to squeeze more ads per pixel. Um, and it's, there's a lot of ads in the world. Like, I mean, we all know 6,000 messages a day. So we're, I didn't think there was any more that we could extract in terms of um, impressions or, or ad messages of people. But um, what's going on there in terms of how search is evolving into new platforms? And do you think, is there danger that if platforms get too greedy, because you see with certain news outlets that they just try and cram too many ad formats on, onto one page, which is ultimately really bad user experience. Um, so how much is enough? And do you think, and, and what's happening in search with, with in new platforms? So, so there's definitely a trend towards platforms increasing ad load. So you see this in everything. I was listening to a podcast this morning and there was effectively a five minute ad break in the middle of the podcast with yeah. the content you had, you know, you, you had the programmatically added, added ads, then you had the sponsor read. It was literally about five minutes, you know, and you get this, um, you quite often now get, you know, like two or three minutes before the podcast starts and then the podcast starts and then you get this five minute break in the middle and stuff. So that, you know, that's, that's, that's one example. If you look at Meta in their company report, in their report, every quarter, they, talk about how many impressions they've been serving or how the number of impressions has gone up. And in the most recent quarter, they said the number of impressions they'd shown to users had gone up 31%, but their number of users has only gone up 7%. So clearly everybody's mm. getting more. And in fact, I was on um, I was on Instagram the other day and in the stories, it was almost like there was an ad break in the stories because it wasn't you know, three of my friend's stories, then an ad, then three of my friend's stories. It was three of my friend's stories then an ad, then another ad, and then back to my friends. Right, yeah. So, so it's almost like they're they're putting they're putting ad breaks in there. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I think of a couple of things. One is that when when people started getting fed up with MySpace about twelve years ago, I think this was now, or maybe maybe slightly longer. One of the reasons was they they'd increased the ad load, yeah, and I, I think they increased. I think they made it harder to do things. I think you had to click on more pages to actually get anything done. And that sort of really, really damaged the experience. And that was one of the things. And at that point, the ad load on on Facebook was extremely low. Mm. Um, so so you can sort of, you know, obviously people will people will prefer things in some respects without advertising if they feel the advertising isn't useful to them. But then when you look at um when you look at Amazon, I was saying earlier, in the last four quarters, Amazon has generated something like $42 billion in revenue. And people don't complain about the adverts on Amazon, or at least I haven't heard yeah. them. Well, I was I must go on to Amazon several times a week looking for something. But and you're in I shopping never, mode. You're in shopping mode on Amazon, right? You're in, so you're in you're shopping. Not, you're not yeah, trying yeah. to connect with your friends and see what's going on. So you've gone on, well, unless it's Amazon Prime, but you've purposefully gone on to in shopping mode uh, to buy something. And so when you get served up, okay, you bought a frying pan, you might like this spatula. It, it's super relevant, but you're primed already, you know, because you've gone on to buy something. So I think that's why people don't complain about it. It's like going into a shop and saying, oh shit, they're trying to sell me stuff everywhere. You're in a shop. 
But what? But what? Yeah. But 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 if but in retrospect, what Amazon has done is an incredible trick. In that, if you'd said five years ago, in five years' time, there's going to be ten billion dollars worth of ads on this on this site, on this site, yeah. and in this app every quarter. You think, oh my God, there'll be pop-ups everywhere. I'll yeah, be, yeah. you know, dodging. It's not. You know, yeah. I'll be. There'll be full-page interstitials, and there'll be this. They they seem to have done it incredibly well. And I think I think there is a way. Of, there is a way of adver- adding advertising and making it useful. So, for example, um, one of the things that Instagram and TikTok have both introduced recently is ads within within uh, within searches. And so, when I was on this last year, I was talking about how people are increasingly using things like Instagram and things like TikTok to search for things because there's a lot of good advice. There's a lot of how-tos and and stuff like that. So they've now started to monetize it by allowing brands to buy to buy keywords within it. Mm. So it can be useful. And then, But then the other thing about increasing ad load is I think, again, going back to Netflix and going back to streaming, um, we sort of think of streaming as a comparatively ad-free or a totally ad-free experience. But actually, advertising is coming. So I think yeah. in the last, I certainly in the UK, I don't know. I'm assuming it's come to Ireland as well. But Disney Plus, there's now ad-funded tiers on that, yeah. and um, and Amazon is going to be adding adding advertising by default to the Amazon Prime Video. So I think you know, as time goes on, we are going to see more advertising. But what that means, you know, obviously as an agency, we're not complaining about more opportunities to potentially target people in more contexts and 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 more opportunities mm. to reach people with our messages but the problem is just just the huge amount of clutter there is going to yeah. be so you've got to be able to make sure that you can buy you can buy the spaces where there's less clutter mm. that you're buying the most premium premium positions and we've got something uh we've got a technology which really measures the attention that people pay to different sorts of advertising in different situations and I think that's going to be really, you know, even more useful going forward, mm. where we're trying to make sure that we're not in the more cluttered environments. But then also, it's it's almost like a bit of a a, a bit of a challenge to say to clients, well, I know we've always advertised here, but actually, it's getting a little bit cluttered. But for example, if you talk thought about buying advertising within gaming because there's fewer advertisers within yeah. there, yeah. or buying advertising in digital audio. And I know I started this off by talking about five-minute ad breaks within some of the favorite podcasts I listen to. Mm. Um, but, you know, that there is there is potentially comparatively less. And with audio, you know, you're, you know, it's occupying like 100% of your attention because... Yeah. Because you're listening to something, mm. and that's what you're focused on. And this is the this is the um, the, the the global study that that you've done that you've done on on attention. Um, and we did so before with Karen Nelson Fields. So there's been. Can you just touch on on a, on a little bit of that and tell me um, <clears throat> what like how do you me- or like what's the output of that? How does, does it get into a attention CPM? Is that kind of one of the things? How do you compare good versus bad? Um, and you you mentioned audio, right? Because I've seen. Um, one of the one of the the people, the media owners who were in to present to us, and they've been going around all the agencies, and they they picked up the Dentsu Global Research thing, and they're in the audio business, and audio came out really well, and obviously, so they've been going around town saying how great this was, and because it's great for their medium, but um, the 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 work and the 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 piece of research and study got a huge amount of traction everywhere in Adland. So, um, can you just? I know it's a it's a whole podcast in itself, but can you just touch on it, on it a little bit for me for people listening? Yeah, for sure. So, so for the last six or seven years we've been working on a project called the attention economy where we've been 
working with partners like Karen Nelson Field, but also people like Lumen to to measure how attentive people are when they see advertising within within other content. And we've looked at things like, and you know, practically how it's done is using things like um using things like cameras. So looking to see where there's technology called eye tracking, yeah. where you can potentially even use the camera on your phone or the camera on your laptop, clearly with people knowing what you're doing, clearly with their permission and things like that. Um, so essentially you can see this particular advert or this particular placement in this particular context gets a lot of gets a lot of attention uh, from people. And we've been doing this, as I say, for about, I think it's six or seven years now. And we've done it across TV. We've done it across, uh, across you know, video advertising within social media and in other sorts of contexts. We've also done it with things like in-game advertising. We, as you said, we recently did it with audio. So we've got an awful lot of studies in terms of how or sort of what it takes to um, to build attention in different sorts of media. I mean, there have always been quite a lot of things like viewability studies, or for the last few years, there've been quite a lot of things like viewability studies, because it was a more re- it was a more reliable way than mm. simply just counting the number of impressions. Because there's all sorts of things that could happen to an impression on a page that you know might not be noticeable or, or something like that. And attention really takes it a stage beyond actual viewability. And so we've been trying to do this with as many media as possible using a number of different partners and and, and brands and things. So we have quite a good database of, um, you know, we know how this works in this sort of situation. So be able to advise people on those sorts of things. Mm. Um, but I think, because I've been talking to a few clients about it, because and I had Karen Nelson Field on the podcast a couple of years ago. So the thing I think that sometimes gets lost in the whole narrative is, because it sounds great, um, attention, attention, um, but actually, if you only measure clicks, for argument's sake, then... Uh, it it's it, you have to measure the right thing if you're gonna if you're gonna try and if we're gonna be talking about it as a currency, but also, like a client can't charge me with delivering better attention, which sometimes so less clutter. Uh, premium Irish publishers, for example, tend to do better. But then Mr. Procurement comes in and beats me up in the audit and says, um, you know, he's only concerned about, or he or she's only concerned about lowest um, number of impressions and and CPMs and that kind of stuff. So you go if you go find the lowest the lowest CPM. Well, that runs contrary to the belief of buying attention if you, can't, if you don't measure the right thing. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword to a degree how clients want it, but um, are they prepared to pay a bit of a premium for that, even though it will ultimately deliver if they measure better sales in the end, you know, because clicks are not that useful. Um, I'm going to move on just because we talked about AI and in, in the trends document, it won't give you too much longer. You talk about new faces for growth. Um and in this world of look, we are in a world of scale and and Meta and and Google and they're they're like they have huge scale um, and they really that's been the big drawback. You you don't even we talked about earlier on the AI will only work within those wall gardens, but they're kind of big enough that you can <clears throat> you can stay within those wall gardens. So this is a bit of a problem for you know you talked about it in in the report um, machine learning. There's bias. It, it how it's how it's kind of fed information. It, it, it's kind of I suppose, polluted by human bias. So um, when you think about minority-owned media and, and and AI planning, is that going to be a big risk to them? Like, could you see them fall off the face of the earth because they don't get support? And is, is AI kind of going to further make life more difficult for them? Well, I think we just need to be really 
conscious as marketers that we can't do everything according to the algorithm. We can't do everything according to, um, you know, sort of trying to trying to let the machine go for the lowest hanging fruit. Mm. Um, because, because yes, the point is that um, if you were, you know, if if you basically said to said to the algorithm, okay, target this particular advert at the people most likely to respond, then you know they they are going to be targeting people who have always traditionally responded to those sorts of things mm. but actually what the whole point about inclusivity is that you're not excluding anybody so you should also be testing well okay we haven't targeted this particular product at this particular audience but we should probably see if we did what would happen and whether they would buy it and things like that um and you know you can think about you can think about things like lifestyle products and you can think about um you know things that you might think well actually it's for this sort of audience but actually a lot of other people might be interested in that so you should definitely um try to target quite broadly yeah. quite a lot of products and not and not you know simply simply trust the algorithm to automatically find the right audience for you uh, but the other thing is when you think about things like minority owned media and in the report we do quite talk quite a lot about the bigger platforms if you think about the smaller platforms the local platforms they've probably got a much deeper connection with their particular users um you know they might talk in a particular language or they might you know come from that particular community or that particular culture and they might just understand much more about the nuances so it's also really really important to be making sure that you're supporting those those local channels those potentially minority owned channels and things in addition to the other things that you're doing mm. Yeah, and because it's a problem before with, um, you know, minority media publications, specialist media publications. So, you know, when clients have block lists and that kind of thing, um, where, and I talked to Jerry Day, Jerry Day, can I think of this about this before? And he was talking about it would be really harmful. So if you just blanket, if you just take a, a, a word and you blanket, remove that from your where you show up, it, it, it removes funding for media outlets and organizations that talk about these things because not every mention of it is obviously not every mention is of, is in a, in a negative light or in a harmful way so does AI now have the ability to kind of model for that for context and say um the nuance around the use of a of a, a word that would product like is going to help with the, the 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 sledgehammer block listing you've used in keywords is or is it not quite there yet does it not understand context at the moment I think it's probably closer to understanding context, but I think you need human involvement in these things. I think you need to just sort of, I mean, you do hear some, you know, some pretty horrific anecdotal stories about people saying we don't want to appear in any page that has a particularly, you know, innocuous word because there have been a few cases where it could be used in a negative context and things like that. Or we don't want to appear in a page where these two words are on the page, even not that they're you know, the two words are together. One might, might be right at the top, another yeah. might be right at the bottom. So you do hear some sort of quite strange stories about things like keyword blocking. And obviously, you know, as at the time we're speaking, uh, the world is in a in a pretty turbulent state. And so it's very, you know, it's it's very clear that keyword blocking is a very good thing to do to make sure you're not appearing in in certain sorts of contexts. But I think also it's about understanding that with quality journalism and the sort of people who read the quality journalism, 
they can put things into context. Right. They're not going to necessarily negatively associate your brand with a particular word if it's in a piece, you know, if it's in an explainer article or if it's in something which is very educational. Mm. But there's also all sorts of negative uses of words and things like that as well. Mm. So I think I think I think it's kind of like a combination of human nuance, human common sense with um, you know, with with the machine to be training it to say this is good, this is bad, and and then you know develop more nuance over time. Right, Dan, that is it. I'm gonna. I'm. I will keep you no longer. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed that. So if anyone is listening, well, if anyone's listening, they know me. They can ask me to send on the research, and we'll be taking it to clients. But if anyone's listening, they're not um, a client of mine in Ireland or um, with us, and they're interested in finding the report. Where can they find it? So if you go to densu.com. Um, you should be able to find links to it. If you also, I think if you just Google Dentsu 2024 Media Trends, or sorry, if you just search for Dentsu 2024 Media Trends uh, on whichever search engine you want to use, then you should be able to find a link to it uh, pretty much near the top, um, cool. if not at if not at the very top. And then if you go through, and it should be quite straightforward for you to download it. Or you can just email me if you're listening. And you or, want to. or just or just email Dave. Yeah, yeah just email me and, and I'll send it on to you if I can find it. Dan, thanks so much. Be- best of luck with your with your circuit tour of of the trends. It's brilliant. It's always it, it's always huge. I, I really look forward to it, and it's always hugely insightful and hugely valuable to me. And we and everybody in here uses it and. We send it to clients, some clients, and we, we, we present it to other clients. I don't do as good a job as you in it, obviously, but we, we present it and say, look, here, we'll go through it with you. And we kind of localize it a little bit and add bits and pieces to it and take some stuff out. But it, it's it's brilliant. So I, I really recommend people. Thank you. That's that's fantastic. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's always fantastic to hear when you hear people talking about it, when you hear that it's useful to people, when you hear that it's, you know, mm. The, the 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 client is now doing this as a result of 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 reading this or, or something like that, and we've mm. we've got lots of examples of that over the years. So yeah, that's great, really good to hear. Yeah, Thank you very excellent. much. So so thanks, Amelia, for coming on, Dan. Thanks, and I'll, I'll let you get on with the rest of your busy day. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that's it. That's all she wrote. We're out of time. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Um, thanks for taking the time. The best look at it, and thanks to Kier in marketing and Andrea on sound, and thanks. As always, to everybody, our wonderful partners in Irish Times Media Solutions who help make it all possible. If you liked that episode, why not listen back to our ever-growing back catalogue of episodes. You will find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your AI-powered search engine of choice. So if you don't know, now you know. That's what 2024 looks like. There's the trend. So until next time, thank you for listening. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.